3: Okay, Molly, a pretty good view from up here. How many uh, structures can you see out there?
2: I can see the Stanford Shopping Center there. I see a guy with a mower coming up the hill and just over this hill there over some of those buildings the beginning of the dunbarton bridge which takes you across the san francisco bay a lot of other office buildings and whatnot around us
3: yeah plenty of apartments well it certainly wouldn't have looked like this 50 years ago i mean it was all you know orchards back then what's that over there can you see over in the distance no i can't because of the smog yeah exactly smog that's another thing that we've changed and you wouldn't have noticed 50 years ago we've changed the smog Well, we've we've introduced this smog, and although you can't really see it, there's a little less fresh water coming through the Golden Gate up there to the north because of course we've dammed up some of the rivers.
2: So it sounds like we've made a lot of changes to the San Francisco Bay, but Seth, I can't imagine what the San Francisco Bay would look like without any human footprint.
3: Well, it's hard to because those times are long gone, and so too may our own epic be on the way out that's right i said epic goodbye holocene hello anthropocene i'm seth jostak and i'm molly bentley anthropocene well that's a geologic term coined by scientists that may come to describe the era we're entering now the age of man
2: welcome to big picture science anthropocene and heard, and what we're hearing is a new epic as a measure of the human impact on the planet, the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which is the group that is in charge of designating geologic time periods, is debating whether we've entered a new era of geologic time.
3: I guess you could say it's an epic debate. Well, William Steffen is executive director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University.
2: Will, now geologists like to look at history in terms of eras and epochs and so forth, the Jurassic era is, is one that comes to mind. What defines an epoch and why is this a useful way of talking about Earth's history?
4: Well, well, Earth history is divided into periods of various types, as you say, uh, and that's been done uh, as a useful tool for people who do research in the area. It's been very helpful to geologists to understand the processes that occur over long time frames in Earth's environment and how they change.
2: So, so are you one of the scientists who wants to rename our epoch the Anthropocene?
4: Yes, I was involved in uh, developing the concept uh, from the beginning. It was first uh, used by Paul Crutzen in the year 2000. Paul's an eminent atmospheric chemist. But we've developed the concept quite a bit since then. And I think, as I said, it's a useful concept to focus people's attention on the fact that in many senses, uh, humans and our activities are now the major influence on the global environment.
2: Well, let's look at that a bit more. But first, if we may, what what's defined the Holocene? This is the epoch that we're currently in, this, this warm period that we're in. What's defined this epoch?
4: Well, the Holocene is, is the latest in a series of warm periods. During the late Quaternary uh, period, the Earth has oscillated between ice ages and warm periods, And uh, the latest one, which is an unusually long one, is called the Holocene. The one before it was actually called the Eemian. So this is a, a natural feature of this time in Earth history is that the Earth orbits around the Sun. Given the shape of its orbit, it oscillates between ice ages and warm periods. This is simply the latest one.
2: Okay, so now we may move from the Holocene into the Anthropocene. And what have we been doing on this planet that warrants another
4: epoch? Yes, we've been doing a lot. The obvious one that a lot of people think about is the climate. And and the climate is shifting rapidly to a much warmer state. But we've changed gas concentrations in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is one a lot of people know about. Methane, nitrous oxide. We've depleted ozone in the stratosphere. We've dammed most of the major rivers around the world and impeded their flow. We've converted something like 30% of the ice-free land to um, heavily used croplands. We've changed marine biota through intensive fishing in many ways, and so on and so on. We've listed a lot of these ways in which we've affected the global environment. Now, the critical point for geologists is, can we see this in the geological record? And that's a debate that's being had now.
2: Because for other eras and so forth, that is what defines, or at least one of the things that defines that epoch is all the creatures, the plants and the animals and so forth that you actually see in the fossil record, for example.
4: That's right. That's a very good point. And, And in fact, several of the large geological eras are separated by mass extinction events. We can think of the one that knocked out the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. But there's growing evidence that we're facing a mass extinction event now. Extinction rates are already perhaps 100 times higher than background rates, and they continue to increase. So uh, many experts are saying we're possibly at the beginning of the sixth great extinction event in Earth history, and if this is so, future geologists would undoubtedly uh, see this this boundary in, in the geological record.
2: So it sounds like that boundary is, is defined not only by the chemical changes on a planet, in the atmosphere, and the warming of the planet, the acidification of the oceans, and so forth, but the change in biodiversity, in other words, the loss of biodiversity.
4: That's right. And the interesting point I think now is as we're grappling with the formalization of the term of the Anthropocene, we're in a unique position because for all the other geological periods, geologists and other scientists have looked back to see evidence of something that's already happened. And now we're looking at something that's unfolding uh, in our own lifetimes. And I think that makes it a trickier uh, scientific question to really determine if we're in the Anthropocene and when indeed did it start.
2: Well, is it actually useful to use this term, Anthropocene, or is it a rebuke in some ways to the public and and a wake-up call? Are you doing it really for symbolic reasons?
4: No, I I think in in terms of science it does have some practical reasons because the original term, when Paul Crutzen used it, was an almost uh, spontaneous reaction to the fact that, that other scientists in this particular meeting that he was at were talking about the Holocene as if we were still in it. And he forcefully made the point as a scientist that, well, can we really say we're still in the Holocene? Because a lot of aspects of that environment that have been stable for ten or 12,000 years are now quite different. So I think that the original use of the term was definitely within the scientific community to help us understand a lot of the, the global scale changes which were actually occurring. Uh, you raise an interesting point about how, if this becomes formalized, how the public will react to it. And that's, that in itself is an interesting question.
2: Do you want to take a stab at the answer to that?
4: I, I, th- I think one of the terms you used, I, I hope, would be a good word, and that's it is a wake up call that we do have a finite planet, that we have benefited enormously by the fact that we've had a stable interglacial warm period for quite a while now, for 10 or 12,000 years. And in fact, without human interference, this would go on for another 10 or 20,000 years, given the more circular shape of the Earth's orbit. So I think what this is saying is we as a species now have a large amount of influence on where the planetary environment's going. So this is a wake-up call to say that the environmental issues we're facing, like climate change, like biodiversity loss and so on, are not marginal environmental issues. They're central to the future direction of of modern society.
2: If this marks the beginning of the Anthropocene, our troubles didn't start yesterday. Uh, When did they start? Because for a long time we were hunter-gatherers, and then we became farmers. Is that when it all started?
4: No, I I, I don't think so. I think we became farmers about 10,000 years ago. And if you look at, certainly land cover was changed, but if you looked at a lot of the other indicators we're looking at now, including gas concentrations, including climate and so on, we can't unequivocally see the imprint of humans at the global scale. The argument now is, is whether we've put the marker at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, say around 1750 or 1800, or do we put it around the end of the Second World War where we saw a massive acceleration of human activity, increase in population, massive increase in economy, consumption, production, and so on. So the two possible start dates are the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, because this is when we first began accessing fossil energy sources. So we went away from using human and muscle power uh, to getting this new energy source, which allowed us to do things we couldn't possibly do in the past.
2: So that's the mid-18th century, say 1750 or so,
4: yeah, 1750 to around 1800, somewhere in there. It, it, uh, scholars debate about precisely when the Industrial Revolution began. But when geologists look for a date, they look for a marker they can see in the sedimentary record. And one very, very clear marker are new radioactive materials that resulted from atomic weapons testing and use. And that, of course, comes in about the time of the Second World War and shortly thereafter. That's an extremely clear marker of human imprint on the global environment. But it's coincident with a whole lot of other things that are associated with what we call the Great Acceleration, the explosion of the human enterprise after the Second World War.
2: I'm stunned a bit by your answer because I thought that our impact would have taken much longer. But what you're saying, it's a very, very short time that we've made significant changes in our planet.
4: Well, again, if you look at pre-1950, you can see the start of a lot of the trends that have exploded after the Second World War. Uh, But in fact, CO2 concentration wasn't that much greater than the long-term Holocene value. It was only about 315 parts per million. Now it's 390. Global average temperature hadn't risen above the envelope of natural variability by 1950. It's been since mid-last century that it's risen. Uh, Extinction rates were started upwards, but they certainly weren't nearly as high as they are now. So in fact, a lot of the trends that we see now in terms of human imprint on the global environment were nascent before the Second World War, but they really exploded afterwards.
2: But there's no guarantee that civilizations last forever. The Romans didn't last forever. The Mayans didn't. But it sounds like you don't want to simply accept the Anthropocene or accept the changes that we're making to this planet, but rather try to reclaim the, the Holocene or try to stay in it or try to change our ways.
4: Well, that's a really good question. There's a group of us who published a, a paper a couple of years ago on the concept of planetary boundaries, And that's trying to say, all right, we know that contemporary society can thrive in a Holocene-like environment. We're out of the Holocene, but can we retrieve a Holocene-like environment at least close enough to the Holocene we think we can continue to thrive? And that's the idea of setting boundaries on critical global or Earth system processes that we shouldn't go beyond or else we're going to get ourselves into trouble.
2: William Stephan, thank you so much for speaking to us.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
3: William Steffen is a climate scientist and the executive director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University in Canberra.
2: A formal vote on whether to rename our epic the Anthropocene is still years away, but debates will be ongoing as the case continues to be made.
3: Well, let's see if we really deserve a new epic. I mean, how much has really changed? See that strip mall there? Well, strip back 100 years, and you'd have a grassy hill and a small town. San Francisco, it was rebuilding after the 1906 earthquake.
2: Right, and go back 200 years, you'd have just a few farms and settlements.
3: Go back 500 years, and there wouldn't have been any Spaniards here yet, just the Indians, and they'd been here for more than 10,000 years already.
2: 11,500 years ago takes us to the end of the Pleistocene, or to the last ice age, and the beginning of the Holocene, where we are now. Right.
3: Humans were on the continent, but you wouldn't have seen very many. Not like today. No people. Just a giant nature park and some pretty good hunks of megafauna. You know, woolly mammoths, saber-toothed cats, the giant beaver.
2: Right, but as Will Steffen said, our troubles didn't start then. They started much more recently. So fast forward... (laughs) Stop. The Industrial Revolution.
3: Okay, that's a lot of steam-fired carbon dioxide pleasure. Now, we heard that there are many contributing factors to the naming of our epic Anthropocene, climate change being one of them. We know it's happening, but how can we be sure that we are the cause?
2: The strongest evidence for the human fingerprint
3: next. Also, a celebration of cities. Anthropocene and heard on Big Picture Science.
5: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Okay, Molly, the preponderance of evidence says that our planet is changing. We're in the midst of climate change.
2: But the question for some has shifted from is it happening to what's behind it? How do we know humans are the cause?
3: Well, we have evidence for that, too. Simon Donner is a geographer at the University of British Columbia.
2: Simon, if you had to point to the strongest piece of evidence that makes the case for human-caused, human-induced climate change, what would it be?
6: My number one piece of evidence would actually be the difference between how temperature changed in the lower atmosphere and in the upper atmosphere.
2: Temperature difference between the lower atmosphere and the upper atmosphere. Don't we have one atmosphere?
6: Well, we do have one atmosphere, but just like a lot of things, it's gotten broken into levels, so levels of air of different density. And so the most common breakdown you hear about is the troposphere, which is the lower atmosphere, where the greenhouse gases are, and the stratosphere, which is part of the upper atmosphere, and that's where the ozone layer is, for example.
2: The lower atmosphere temperatures are going up, but the upper atmosphere temperatures are coming down. Can you explain that? And also, why does this say that humans are involved?
6: Well, well, think about it this way. If the sun was responsible for the change in climate that we've seen, so if it was purely due to the solar activity, the was, sun was getting hotter, let's say, you would expect the whole atmosphere to sort of warm at a somewhat similar rate. Whereas if the changes in climate were due to human activity, due to greenhouse gases, well, we definitely expect the lower atmosphere to warm because that's where the greenhouse gases are. And they're doing that absorption and keeping the radiant heat and energy in the lower atmosphere. So you'd expect the lower atmosphere to warm, but you wouldn't necessarily expect the upper atmosphere to warm. And in fact, the upper atmosphere has been cooling, and that cooling has been happening in relation to the destruction of the ozone layer, actually. And so it works out that this is sort of like a fingerprint. We look at this, and you can see the fingerprint of, of you know, human activity on the changes in the climate. Right. In a way that the fingerprint of the sun would not look the same.
2: Let me press you on that a bit, because one could say that the temperature has been going up and down throughout Earth's climate history. Um, certainly ice ages have come and, and they've gone. And um, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has, has gone up and down. And, and aren't all of these suggestions that this change and this temperature change that
6: we're seeing could be natural? Well, they, they could be, except the difference is that we know what causes the ice ages, right? And we know that it's changes in the way the Earth orbits around the sun. And that hasn't changed in the past 150 years, not by any measure nearly enough to cause the sort of changes that we've seen. So a lot of times, you know, like this example I've used about comparing the lower and the upper atmosphere, the things we need to do to try and prove that it's due to human activity is go to the numbers, Right? And that's what scientists like myself and, and thousands of others around the world have been working on for the past 20 or 30 years, is going to the numbers and saying, you know, can we show this?
2: Okay, let's go to the numbers then. Can you give us some of those numbers, those temperature differences?
6: Well, so we know that the planet has increased about a degree Fahrenheit or so since the industrial revolution a lot of that warming has happened within the past 50 years the past decade the first decade of the 2000s was the warmest decade in recorded history right since we have good temperature records going back and so we know that the planet's been warming the thing that happens is if we try to say well maybe the sun is responsible for this warming well we need to look at the output of energy from the sun and we measure that and we see that the sun's output does vary there is a sort of around decadal cycle in the output of the sun that's related to sunspot activity. But if you look at how much the difference in radiation that's emitted from the low of the cycle to the height of the cycle, it can really only explain about 0.1 degrees Celsius of temperature variability. It just can't explain what we've measured.
2: Now, did you say that the average temperature difference of the lower atmosphere is 1 degree Fahrenheit? It's gone up by one degree Fahrenheit? Right.
6: So what we're saying, we, the, the temperature of the surface of the planet has gone up about a degree Fahrenheit, a little bit more than that, depending on what years exactly you used to do the comparison.
2: Well, Simon, that doesn't sound like a lot. One degree. I mean, if, if you turned up the heat in this room so that it went up by one degree, I don't know that I would notice it.
6: No, that's right. And it it doesn't sound like a lot, but of course, we're talking about the average temperature of the planet, right? And so that is masking smaller changes to some places, larger changes in other places like the Arctic, for example. That's all being masked in there. And, you know, we're not trying to say, you know, most of the scientific community is not trying to say that the change that we've seen is necessarily disastrous. I think the concern that people have is how this may accelerate in the future and the fact that the climate warming that we've seen to date is not the full response to the greenhouse gases we've put in the atmosphere. There are some lags, there's some memory in the system, so it's taking some time to respond. So the the greenhouse gases in the, that are already there in the atmosphere are gonna result in more warming than we've already seen over the next few decades, and we're increasing the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere even further.
2: And finally, what do you think is the best form or means of communication for scientists to the public? What, what is the most effective way of getting the message out? Is it going, you know, talking in shopping malls, giving talks? Is it newspaper or, or radio interviews? Or what seems to work?
6: Well, I think one of the things for science communication, one of the challenges, is not doing what we might call preaching to the converted. You know, I'm a scientist, I, I work at a university for a living, and I listen to science podcasts. But I probably don't need maybe to be listening to him as much to learn the science. I'm just interested in it. But I, mean, I know a lot of the content already. Not always, of course. But And so the challenge is to figure out how do we reach the sort of the audience that's somewhat more disengaged from the subject. And I think that means really thinking outside the box, not just going and giving public talks where the same set of people are going to attend a talk, a public talk about science. And maybe not always... Speaking to reporters just from the same newspapers, but trying to reach smaller town newspapers and trying to get involved in forums, you know, and trying to talk to people when you're on the bus, when you're in the shopping mall and everything. And the goal of all of this is not just for scientists to talk, but it's for scientists to listen. Because I think one of the problems that's really clear from all of the research on public communication is that scientists don't know their audience very well.
2: What do you mean by that?
6: Well, scientists make the mistake of assuming if we just give more facts, people will get things, right? It's what they call the the sort of deficit model. People would get it if we just dump more numbers on them. Or perhaps show a graph. Or show a graph, right? So maybe (laughs) rather than show the graph, start off by saying, why do you find this hard to believe? And so I actually start, when I've given public talks in the past couple years... I start by saying why I, as a person, not as a scientist, but just as Simon Donner, citizen, you know, and, and human, why I find this subject hard to believe. I talk about looking up at the sky or looking down at the water from the, the beach here in Vancouver and how it's hard to believe that, that we could change all of this. And then I lead into talking about, well, the numbers show that it's happening. Hmm.
2: Simon Donner, thank you very much for explaining the science to
3: us. Thanks, Molly. Simon Donner is a geographer at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Uh, Take in that lovely smog I mean air Of Highway 880 One of the busiest in the country
2: With some of the craziest drivers, Seth I've seen people drive while talking on phones While texting, while eating a burrito While texting and eating a burrito
3: Yeah, but to paraphrase a song the city is where Glazer'd rather stay, he's allergic to smelling hay.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, but I'm not sure that Ed Glazier would like to smell or celebrate this traffic here. But it is true that the Harvard Economist <laughs> <laughs> says evidence indicates that cities are not to be reviled. Cities are fundamental and essential celebration of what it means to be human. Triumph of the City is Ed Glazier's book.
7: The most exciting thing about cities to me is the fact that they enable human beings to play to their greatest strengths, which is our ability to learn from the people around us. We come out of the womb with this remarkable ability to soak up information from our parents, from our peers, from our siblings, from our teachers. And that ability to get smart by being around other smart people is what makes cities so important because they collect people and enable them to borrow each other's ideas and to create the collaborative chains of invention that are responsible for humanity's greatest hits.
3: So so it sounds like what you're saying is that it allows that face-to-face contact.
7: It enables the face-to-face contact that uh, enables us to learn from one another and to create great innovations.
3: But, okay, Boston is a great city, but, you know, it's carpeted with pavement. It's got dirty streets, traffic, crazy drivers, run-down buildings in some parts of town. I mean, you know, Dorchester or Roxbury, it doesn't sound so good to me.
7: (laughs) You know, even when you look at the poorer sections of a city like Boston, you have to remember that Boston has poor people not because it made them poor, but because it attracted poor people with the promise of economic opportunity, with the ability to get around without a car for every adult. Sure, city living is messy, but cities offer tremendous benefits both to the wealthier residents and to those people who come to the city with less. If you look back at Detroit 120 years ago, which in many ways has the level of entrepreneurship we associate with Silicon Valley in the 1970s, there's a a genius on every street corner. I mean, it's not just Henry Ford. There's the the Fisher brothers, the Dodge brothers, David Dunbar, Buick, Ransom Olds, Billy Durant in nearby Flint, all of whom were collectively competing to come up with a new, new thing. And they were so productive because they were connected by the city. You know, there's a a story, which is almost assuredly apocryphal, of of the young Henry Ford following Charles Kirby, the first person to build a car in Detroit, down the streets of the city on a bicycle. And I I like that image so much because it really, to me, suggests the ability of cities to enable innovators to learn from one another as the young Henry Ford surely learned from Charles Kirby.
3: So it sounds like cities are great because... Within them, uh, you get the innovation that can solve the problems brought about by cities. So, in some sense, they're kind of, <laughs> kind of self healing like my automobile tires. I mean,
7: but, but let me. A, let, there's a lot of truth to this. One of my favorite examples of self healing cities is certainly density has its downsides. If two people are close enough to exchange an idea face to face, they are also close enough to give each other a contagious disease. And uh, that's been a challenge that cities have have faced for millennia, right? A boy born in New York City in 1900 could expect to live seven years less than the national average in the United States. Today, of course, life expectancy in New York is higher than the national average. But that didn't happen by accident. That happened because of both large-scale investment and things like waterworks. But it also happened because of an increased ability of understanding those contagious disease. And and one of the places where that happened was in London 150 years ago, where John Snow was able to look at the outbreak of cholera in the city, was able to use the information provided by the city, the, the famous ghost map, and trace the roots of that cholera epidemic to a poisoned water pump. That's really the city providing the information to solve its own problems. So I really do believe there is a certain self-protective element to density. Okay, well,
3: it's easy to celebrate Boston, New York, Hong Kong. But what about a city like Linfen, China, which is one of the most polluted cities in the world? People choking on coal dust. The drinking water has arsenic in it. Doesn't sound like a celebration of anything there.
7: (laughs) Well, I think as long as people are voluntarily choosing to live in the city, it's got to have something going for it. And I think part of the problem when appraising cities in the developing world is we're not level setting our views properly in the sense that you look at, you know, a difficult city in sub-Saharan Africa or India or China, and you say to yourself, my goodness, I would never want to live in this place. Well, that's right, because you live in a country where you're so much wealthier that you'd never have to consider making that choice. But if your alternative is stealthifying rural poverty, then that city might look pretty good. And indeed, it's a striking fact that in terms of stated life satisfaction data, There's no real difference between people who live in cities and people who don't live in cities in wealthy countries. There's no sense in which people who live in urban areas say that they're particularly happier in in wealthier countries. But there is in poorer countries. So despite the downsides, it seems as if people are both choosing and, in fact, liking the fact that they've chosen to live in these very messy, very difficult developing world cities.
3: Sounds like the you know, the better of two evils, perhaps. I, I don't know.
7: <laughs> I think that, that's right. But, you know, much of human history has been full of life that has been extraordinarily painful. So,
3: Ed, you make a good case for why cities are good for humans. But what about for the planet? I mean, scientists have coined a new term to describe the uh, current era of urbanization. They call it the Anthropocene, the idea being that we're no longer in the Holocene era. Uh, but to the extent that human activities have had a significant impact on climate change, for example— You know, that doesn't sound like a vote of confidence for urban life.
7: So I think the important thing here is to separate out the process of development from urbanization in this case. So unquestionably, it's the case that if we all went back to being, you know, hunters and gatherers, we would have had significantly less impact on the environment, at least if there were very few of us. There were very few of us who were hunters and gatherers. We wouldn't have impacted the world in the same way. But if we're comfortable with the idea that we don't really want human beings to go back to being that poor and that much at the complete mercy of our outside environment, if we're comfortable with the idea that we want the reductions in infant mortality that come with prosperity, then we should ask how we want that prosperity organized. Do we want people to be spread out, mixed among the trees in some sort of low-density living, or do we want cities where people cluster together? And I think the environmental case for cities, conditional upon the level of development, is pretty strong. Together with Matthew Kahn of UCLA, I've looked at carbon emissions across many areas in the country, and we find that people who live in dense areas are using substantially less energy and emitting substantially less carbon, even holding income and family size constant. This is because of both shorter driving distances and because people who live in dense areas typically have smaller housing units, even holding income and family size constant, and smaller housing units mean less electricity and less home heating bills. Clustering people together is in some sense a way to minimize our impact on the environment, not to increase it.
3: What about the future, Ed? In, in sci-fi films, nearly every vision of the future is an urban vision, usually with high-tech thoroughfares curving all over the place like concrete, <laughs> roller coasters, incredibly elaborate modern buildings, and no older buildings. I mean, is the future of planet Earth to become one huge city
7: I don't – I mean, first of all, you can put the entire world on 10th-acre lots in the state of Texas. So it's not as if you need to take up a huge amount of the world. And that's suburban living, right? I mean, you can actually put the whole of the world in sort of a relatively compact but still sprawling metropolis in one state of the United States. So unless you're thinking that the world population is going to go up a thousandfold – we certainly have every ability to leave much of the world green, especially if we live more compactly. The second trend, though, in terms of the world becoming one big city, is that over time I think we've seen the quality of life issues in cities come to the fore more. And quality of life can mean, in some sense, respecting older buildings. I actually have been critical of preservationism in some cases because I think it's gone too far. But certainly many cities, including Boston, uh, become more attractive because they have echoes of their past. And, of course, over time we've gotten more sensitive, including nature into our cities, of folding greenery into the spaces that we inhabit. Now, that greenery in the city isn't necessarily a a good way of taking care of the environment. In fact, one can argue from a purely environmental point of view that it would be better if we lived as close as we possibly could to each other without any parks whatsoever. But from a quality of life point of view, it certainly makes life more pleasant to have green spaces around us. And I think that's all in the futures.
3: Well, finally, Ed. Uh, you must sometimes want to get away from it all. So when you leave Boston, when you leave Cambridge, where do you go?
7: (laughs) Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, because we ended up living in a suburb, and I've really had more than enough of trees whenever I go on vacations, I always drag my kids to some sort of urban locale because I think they've seen really enough nature, at least relative to my inclination. So I like to take them to cities, both in Europe and in the U.S., to give them a sense of the rich variety of urban life.
3: Ed Glazer, thanks so much for being with us today.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Massachusetts is where Edward Glazier works as an economist at Harvard University. He is the author of Triumph of the City, how our greatest invention makes us richer, smarter, greener, healthier, and happier.
3: Next, alien civilizations and ancient sewers.
2: Anthropocene and herd, it's the big picture.
3: Big picture science.
7: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Well, Seth, as we look around here in the South Bay near San Francisco, the buildings and the roads, they all look so permanent.
3: Right. But as you and Will Stefan discussed earlier, civilizations just don't last forever. Ed Glazer talked about the future of the city, like the city around us here. But what about the long-term future of civilization and not just ours?
2: If an intelligent life evolved somewhere else in the universe, one question is, did a civilization arise as well? And if so, then another question of sustainability arises, and we still don't know if we could meet that challenge.
3: Okay, well, I'm about to throw some numbers at you, but they're important. The Drake Equation is used to estimate the number of alien societies out there that are broadcasting signals right now. Now, that depends on the number of stars, obviously, and the fraction of them that have decent planets. And then the fraction of those planets that have spawned life. F sub L. And the fraction of those that have produced intelligent life. F sub I. I mean, it all sounds like advanced algebra, but hey, it's only really eighth grade math. But one of the terms in the Drake equation, F sub C, has a special interest for Doug
1: Vakoch. F sub C is the fraction of planets that have intelligent life where that intelligence actually goes on to develop the ability to communicate at interstellar distances. Think of it as a civilization that has a radio transmitter or laser that they use to transmit pulses to make themselves known to us.
3: So, this is the fraction of inhabited planets with life with intelligent life with
1: intelligent life you know the before the before we get to the term f sub c there's terms as you mentioned the astronomical terms drake equation starts with the rate of star formation then the number of planets that typical star has that are inhabitable and then if they are inhabitable do they actually go on to have life originate and evolve and then of those there's a fraction that go on to have intelligent life and of that intelligent life, what fraction of those planets that have intelligent life that have the ability to communicate at interstellar distances? We're not interested just in intelligent dolphins on other worlds. You know, If they don't have the ability to build the technology that lets us communicate across the vast distances of space, they don't count in terms of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Well, uh, I, I hope that the dolphins of the world don't take that poorly. <laughs> well, <but laughs> no, no, you know, no, no insult intended, <laughs> but you know, they can quietly be communicating in whistles and chirps on other worlds, but it's not going to help us find them, and that's what we're really looking for in SETI.
3: Well, looking at Homo sapiens sapiens, because we've had intelligent life by our own definition uh, for the last hundred, two hundred thousand years, and we've only developed radio technology that can produce transmitters that could, at least in principle reach deep into space in the last fewer than 100 years, the last 50 years, the last 70, only you know 99.9% of the time that we were an intelligent species, we didn't have this. Does that augur poorly for the chances of finding that other worlds, even if they've produced species as clever as we are, that they will ever develop the kind of uh, technological capability required?
1: Well, it means... They're going to, on average, have to be a lot longer-lived technologically than we are if we're to make contact. You know, our galaxy's been around for over 13 billion years. And that 100 years of capability to communicate with radio is just a blip on a galactic timescale. So if we have our 100-year blip and they have their 100-year blip, it's virtually impossible that those blips will coincide. The only way we make contact with another civilization is if they stay around a lot longer than we have so far as a technological civilization.
3: Well, that brings us to the last term in the Drake equation, which is the one after F sub C, L.
1: And L stands for... The longevity or the lifetime of a civilization. And, you know, that's the big unknown. We we hope, at least here on Earth, that that's a very big number. But it means that we would need to take care of our planet enough to survive as an intelligent civilization, and that we would have the interest in maintaining contact. So remember, in terms of the Drake equation, what we're interested in is estimating how many civilizations are there that we can make contact with.
3: What about the possibility that, uh, I mean, the various possible ends to our tenure as an, an intelligent communicating civilization, right? I mean, to begin with, there's self-destruction. But another possibility is that we somehow replace ourselves with a different species, one that uh, isn't us anymore, but that might still have technology. Does that matter or is it just it, doesn't matter?
1: It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's human beings who are flicking the switch on the radio or if it's an artificial intelligence, as long as they're curious. A hallmark of intelligence is wanting to understand our surroundings, wanting to predict and control things. And that could be a manifestation of silicon life as much as it is carbon-based life. So I wouldn't be surprised uh, the first signal coming in from an extraterrestrial to be from an artificial intelligence. And in fact, if there is an artificial intelligence, they may not have some of the same constraints that we have on our own individual lifetimes. And when we think about communicating with another civilization in human terms, it's not something that's going to happen in an individual lifetime. If you're an extraterrestrial and you happen to be a computer, maybe that communication that takes thousands of years for a round-trip communication is something that could happen in your own lifetime.
3: Well, finally, Doug, uh, recently Martin Rees, who has been the Astronomer Royal of England, uh, pointed out that there have been 45 million centuries of history here on Earth, but that this century was actually special that there really is some excuse for saying we're entering a new era because it's what we do in this century that will determine the future of this planet. How how do you feel about that?
1: We really are at a critical point. I mean, if we look at the number of species that humankind has wiped out and the sort of global environmental changes that humans have caused, this is on the order of the changes that we've seen occurring by nature in past epochs. So I think it's reasonable to talk about a new era with the arising of human intelligence, and I'll use that in quotation marks. We've certainly had a profound impact, and one of the things we know about uh, being human is that we can make choices to use our intelligence a bit more wisely than we have.
3: Doug Vacoach, thank you very much for being with us.
1: It's been my pleasure.
2: Doug Vacoach has one of the grooviest titles in science. Director of Interstellar Message Composition at the SETI Institute. His job is to consider the different ways civilizations could create messages for transmission through space. Well, Seth, as we walk around this neighborhood and look at these apartment blocks, I can't help wondering whether they'll still be here in a thousand years.
3: Well, I doubt that the buildings per se will be here a thousand years from now, but maybe there will still be some evidence that they once were here, and that could be interesting to our descendants, as was learned by Mark Robinson when he made a discovery under a structure rather similar to this
8: one here. Underneath a series of apartment blocks, a long sewer was discovered, 86 meters long, three meters high, just under one meter wide, and it was found to have its contents still in situ.
2: Well, that's not so unusual, so he found a sewer. Okay, his was still filled with stuff, which is a little squeamy, But 86 meters long, 3 meters high, and about a meter wide, that's about the size of the hallway, I'd assume, is in that building.
3: No, it's not unusual to find a sewer under an apartment block. Indeed, I hope there is one under this one here. Else we should be on the hunt for one giant outhouse. But what's remarkable about archaeologist Dr. Robinson's find is that this sewer and its contents are 2,000 years old. Roman latrines. That's right. The Oxford scientist and his doctoral student Erica Rowan discovered at the site of Herculaneum, an ancient Roman city near the foot of Vesuvius, an old sewer system.
2: Dr. Robinson must have been flush with the discovery.
3: Well, it's not the sort of uh, thing you take sitting down. It's important, Molly, because as we consider what a civilization leaves behind... No double pun there. ...even excavating a tank of excrement can reveal
8: facts about daily life. It rather has the character of an elongate septic tank... So the solids would gradually have accumulated in it. There was a small, tortuous route which let liquids drain away, but the solid contents would not have been flushed out. They would have been cleaned out by slaves every few years.
3: And presumably the fact that it wasn't cleaned out was simply due to the destruction of the town by the eruption of Vesuvius in, what, 79 AD, Right.
8: Yes, yes. The town was buried by 30 meters or so of hot pyroclastic ash, uh, sealing everything in situ.
3: Well, bad for them, but good for you. Uh, Indeed. <laughs> well, not to put too fine a point on it, though, what you're talking about here is a uh, treasure trove, if that's the correct uh, term, of 2,000-year-old human feces. Is, is that right? I mean, these things weren't in nice plastic baggies or anything like that. Yes. Just uh,
8: piled up. Yes, that, that's so, but uh, it's not noxious material. Uh, it had undergone some decay and the organic component has, has been lost, so no smell. But there's good survival of the mineral component uh, of the food waste, so bone and shell are well preserved. Roman latrines tended to be in kitchens, and kitchen waste also was thrown down the toilet, so there is a certain amount of carbonized material from the kitchen hearths, and also something that operates in conditions of liquid sewage, and that is the botanical remains, uh, assorted seeds, pits, and so on, are preserved by calcium phosphate mineralization.
3: So what you're getting here is waste that was just kitchen waste so this was food before it was eaten and of course the uh, sewage from the latrines which is uh, you know, the food after it had been eaten yes so you get you know, both ends of the story here do you see any macroscopic objects in in this waste did they accidentally oh. lose stuff down the toilets
8: oh yeah oh yes yes when excavating it there are fragments of pottery quite a few lamps were accidentally dropped down the toilet several glass vessels floor sweepings a gold ring
3: Erica, you're actually uh, doing the the dirty work, although it sounds like it isn't all that dirty, of (laughs) analyzing what's been dug up here under the city of Herculaneum. If if they sat down for dinner, you know, 2,000 years ago, what would they find on their plates?
0: Probably some olives, some grapes. They ate a lot of fish and seafood, um, much like people in Naples do today. Probably would have been some bread, maybe some hazelnuts, some
3: walnuts, lot of figs. This doesn't sound like a very bad diet. I mean, I've read accounts in the past in which people describe some of the things that Romans ate, and it, it, it sounded totally unappealing. This sounds like a pretty good diet.
0: It does. It sounds quite healthy. And of course, back then, everything would have been organic and fairly fresh. So it probably would have been pretty tasty. And there were a lot of seasonings. So fennel, coriander, dill.
8: Seeds are preserved if they are swallowed intact. So this meant we found large numbers of fig pips, also seeds of grape and mulberry, various food flavorings such as coriander. Conversely, we don't get good preservation of cereals because they are ground up, they are milled. But what we do find, which provides evidence for the cereal component of the diet, are the hard weed seeds that don't get ground up, so seeds of something called catch fly, and even remains of weevils that had infested the grain. So the grain weevil Cytophilus granarius survived being ground, presumably baked into bread, uh, wasn't digested, and ended up in the sewage.
3: Now, do you know that this was actually the diet that was being eaten by the average resident there, not by the patricians? Because the very fact that they had some sort of waste disposal system in their house strikes me as something that maybe only the upper class would have.
0: Well, above the sewer is a series of shops, and then above that is a series of flats. And so we know that the food was coming directly from the flats above, and they're not huge, and they're not the grand houses that you'll find in other places in Herculaneum and Pompeii. So we can tell it is fairly middle, lower class diet.
3: Now, if I were living elsewhere in the Roman Empire, maybe still in what is today called Italy, but you know, not, not near the coast there, how would my diet be different? Do we have any information on that?
0: Probably a lot less fish and seafood. All the fish and seafood kind of lives in the area, so it could have been collected just in small boats or from the shore of Herculaneum. And Diocletian's price edict, um, although it's a bit later, ranks sea urchin as a very expensive food item. However, we find it all the time. These people clearly have easy access to this normally
3: luxury food item. One thing you haven't mentioned is meat. And today, Americans at least will eat meat, well, every meal of the day. That's not unusual. Uh, You haven't said anything about big ungulates being uh, skewered and roasted or whatever and put on the plate.
0: There was a little bit of chicken found, some pig and sheep, but not in the huge quantities that you would expect to find, you know, if it was somewhere today eating the quantity of meat that we eat
3: too bad that we don't have medical records for these people. It would be interesting to compare their incidence of some of the diseases that we seem to get from the the things that we eat all the time. Uh, But they did eat uh, dormice, I'm told, Uh, these small rodents, right?
0: In the literary accounts, it says so, but I haven't actually found any dormice. Really? In the samples, yeah.
3: Is there anything surprising in your findings, Erica, things that you thought, my goodness, we we, we never suspected this?
0: Firstly, I'd have to say the diversity. It's a lot more diverse than I would have expected, like I said, there's several types of seasonings and fruits and vegetables and different types of fish and different types of seafood. And secondly, I found black pepper, which is normally a very upper-class item since it was imported all the way from India. It was extremely expensive.
3: That is surprising. Uh, pepper, that as you say, comes a long way. And the fact that that reached all the way down to the ordinary folk bespeaks an empire that, in fact was very civilized, if I can use that term, although they invented the term. It sounds very civilized to me.
0: It was, I think. And it's possible, although we can't tell from the grains, that a lot of them were imported from places like Egypt. So they they did have a lot of import-export of items.
3: So really, they were really benefiting from a, a world economy here in Herculaneum.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure being in Italy and being on the coast um, and being next to large ports definitely helped
3: as well. Could you tell anything about the sorts of diseases that these people might have had?
0: Um, they have found over 300 skeletons in boat sheds along the shore. Some people had the usual disease, things like arthritis, but there haven't been too many cases of rickets. Most people had kind of low-grade anemia, but that's that's not surprising for the ancient world. Um, but on the whole, it seems like most people were, were fairly healthy.
3: So fortunately for the archaeologists, Herculaneum and, of course, Pompeii were essentially frozen in their tracks. They didn't die out. They were just obliterated in the course of a day or two. If that were to happen today to modern-day Naples and your successors 2,000 years from now were digging through the uh, sewers of Naples or the cesspits of Naples, what would they learn?
0: A lot about diet, a lot about maybe food storage. Things like Tupperware and plastic bags would survive, so they'd figure out what we put it in. But I think they'd have a lot more trouble than we are now, considering there's a lot more processed food out there. Many varieties of fruits now come seedless. You can get seedless grapes, so none of that would survive. Thankfully, the Romans didn't have that. And oftentimes, things like bones are removed. Fish is deboned and things like that, or you'll buy processed meat where there is no bone. So there would be a lot less for them to find, I think.
3: Well, we can only hope that they find some of the uh, cookbooks. <laughs> Eric, around Mark Robinson, thank you for uh, being with us today.
8: Thanks very much for having me. Thanks very much.
2: Mark Robinson is Director of Environmental Archaeology at the University of Oxford. Erica Rowan is a doctoral student at Oxford.
3: Uh, Molly, maybe we should have invited them for our next Septic Check show. Okay, seriously though, it does make you wonder. I mean, what's going to be left of our civilization for archaeologists and their students of the future to find thousands of years from now?
2: Well, Seth, as a final note, I asked Will Steffen that very question. And finally, if you were an archaeologist, say, not 100, 200, 500 years from now, digging back through the record, what do you think a scientist would find and what would we be remembered for in the way that we dig back and look at ancient Rome and so forth?
4: Well, I think one thing is one thing we already touched about, and that's the the biodiversity loss. I think that will really stand out, and and that will take more than 500 years. It would be thousands of years, but it will be a clear, sharp, boundary in the fossil record when uh, geologists of the distant future look at that. I think destabilization of the climate will also be one that 500 years from now that's still playing out. Sea level will almost surely still be rising but I think scientists 500 years from the future will be struck by how stable the climate was before the 20th century and how destabilized it has become since
7: then.
2: That's it for our show. Thanks to our larger-than-life, indefatigable, enduring, and stable production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler.
3: Also support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners.
2: You've been listening to Anthropocene and Heard. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
3: If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listings on our website of radio stations that carry Big Picture Science.